0: Acts 17, I want to think this morning about being properly provoked, properly provoked and in Acts 17 and verse 16 uh, through 34, quite a few verses but we'll move uh, with good pace through it this morning, I want to think about being properly provoked and from the example of Paul here, Acts 17 and let's come in at verse 16 and let's read the word of God together. Now, While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious or too religious. For I, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship." Him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, And the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek after the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto silver or unto gold or silver or stone, uh, graven by art or man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Among the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Amen. We'll end it there at verse 34. I wonder, have you ever heard the expression, or maybe used the expression, maybe quite unique to Northern Ireland, You're doing my head in. I'm sure that's never been uttered in any household here. I'm sure it's never been said between any husband or wife, particularly in the week that's gone into eternity and February 14th and all that, but you're doing my head in. Generally speaking, we get motivated in some form or another or provoked in some form or another. And of course, motivation and being provoked to do a good thing isn't a bad thing. We all need sometimes a wee jag. And of course, if we're all honest about it, money motivates an awful lot of us to get up in the morning so you can pay bills. Uh, Your boss might motivate you by threatening to sack you if you're not very good at your job, Uh, all these other things. Other people are motivated or get provoked by other very interesting things. And I'm sure maybe you've had this experience. I have watched grown men, men who are very sensible, very sedate, very respectable, and they get totally transformed and motivated and provoked whenever they stand beside a football pitch. And they get very frustrated, and I can understand this with the team that I support, although we're on a good run at the moment. But you can stand and you can observe and grown men get really annoyed, get really provoked, get really stirred up whenever their team lose the ball, whenever somebody gets a yellow card or maybe there's a penalty or a decision goes against them. Other people, uh, and maybe you've had this experience, you're driving along, minding your own business, and you're maybe listening to the radio, and maybe someone comes on the radio from a particular political party and they do my head and I can't listen to them and boom, off goes the radio. You get provoked. Other people get provoked about politics. Other people get provoked about the weather. Whatever it is, we have to admit that there is always something in our lives that gets, we would say, gets on our goat. It really does our head in. Now, I'm not going to tell you this morning uh, what my line is. Otherwise, you might try and provoke the pastor uh, in some small way. I'm not going to tell you what really gets my goat, but you might figure it out. Uh, from my preaching over these last few years but listen the context where are we at here with Paul because on this missionary journey so far we've been to Syria, Derby, uh, Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea and now we find ourselves in Athens And what we have to understand about Athens at this particular time and why Paul would go to preach what he would preach, and we'd hopefully look at that this morning, we have to understand that at this particular time, Athens and Greece was probably at the pinnacle in terms of literature and knowledge, for sculpture, for architecture, philosophy, all these different things, it was probably at the absolute pinnacle. It was the best. Maybe some of you have been uh, to Athens or to Greece and you can understand and you can still see the remnants of some of the tremendous architecture and sculptures. What always amazes me about those things of all those years ago, they didn't have computer programs or models to figure out how to design all these things. They didn't have, uh, what is it you boys in the farm use, Manitous and all these different things to lift stuff up high. How on earth did they get all that, all that stuff up high and how is it on earth is it still standing? It's an incredible feat of, of human engineering with all the limitations. And yet, All these men, these Greeks, and these women that Paul would preach to, they had reached the absolute height in terms of all the intellectual. They had brains to burn. They had all these different things. And yet, as we will see this morning, they were still ignorant of God. They were still ignorant of God. They didn't know God. And so there was a day when Paul... Would challenge them afresh. The first thing that I want you to see here is Paul's stirring. Look at this in verse sixteen through twenty-one, because an awful lot of people will, if you like, gloss over these verses and they come straight down to verse twenty-two, where he's in the middle of Mars Hill, and people quite rightly say it was a tremendous sermon and message from Paul and all the rest of it. But I want you to see what motivated, what provoked Paul to be able to preach like that. And we'll see that here in these verses 16 through 21. There was something that led to that great message. There was a pure motive behind it. Paul was stirred. He was provoked to do something about it. Now, let me ask you a question just before we get into the text this morning. What motivates you in the assembly, what stirs you for service? What motivates you for the meeting? Uh, what, what is your provocation for preaching or proclaiming the gospel if that's what you're involved with? I want you to see, first of all, here in verse 16, there was waiting. Look what happened to Paul. Now, when Paul waited for them, who? what's he talking about Hell? Well, you can see here in verse 15, uh, they, And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, For to come to him with all speed, they departed. So, Paul was waiting on his trusted colleagues. He was waiting on his allies, his backers in this missionary journey. He was waiting. You see, one thing I want you to notice here you might be here this morning and you might feel that you are in a season of waiting. You might feel that you're maybe, as it were, in between roles for the Lord Jesus Christ. You might feel that maybe some element of ministry that you're involved with, either here or outside the assembly, that has naturally finished or come to a conclusion, and you're waiting for the next thing to open up for you, and you're in this in-between period, you're waiting. But I want you to see that even when Paul was waiting, he wasn't being idleness. I want you to see, because in verse 16, he wasn't just waiting, but he was watching. Now look what happens here. While Paul waited for them at Athens, look at this carefully, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. See, Paul would have been walking around that city of Athens, and he began to notice that everywhere he looked, everywhere he turned, there were gods. There were gods all over the place. Some people reckon that there could have been or estimate as many as 30,000 gods that people would have worshipped in the city of Athens. They were completely given over to idolatry. And in fact, as we will see, and whenever we come down to uh, verse 23, they even had an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. They were so concerned that maybe they'd missed out a God somewhere along the line that they made this altar to the unknown God and that would cover that base and they wouldn't get caught out. They were completely given over to worshiping all these gods. One person has said it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. There were gods everywhere. The place was completely given over to idolatry. And yet with all their worship of these gods, for all the worshiping of images and these different things that they had constructed, they were still empty inside. Now, did you see that little phrase there? His spirit was stirred in him. That phrase can be translated as vexed or provoked or stabbed. Paul was greatly stabbed. He was pricked in the heart. He was so hurt by the sight of these people, enslaved in their idolatry, caught up, bound up in their sin, and going to a lost eternity, and he wanted to do something about it. Now, we've already discovered and we've looked at idolatry a number of weeks ago, so we're not going to go back over it, but you know it. An idol is anything that replaces God. And friends, let me tell you something this morning. Our, our little town is full of people who have replaced God, are replacing God. And they replace God with all manner of things. They replace God with self-improvement, uh, career improvement, advancement. They try and replace him with healthy lifestyles and all different ideas. They have these ideas about karma and the good outweighs the bad and all these weird and wonderful things. And they're desperately trying to replace God. And they've made it into an idol. They've replaced God with lots of little gods. They've replaced a relationship with God with religion. In our little town and wherever maybe you've come from, you'll know that it is full of it. The question for you this morning, and the challenge that came to me uh, this week was this. Do we see Kilray, or wherever it is that you live, do you see Kilray as a little town Wholly, completely given over to idolatry. Because that's what it is. Paul was stirred. He was provoked. He was motivated to do something about it. Look at this with me. Because Paul was properly provoked. Why? He saw sin. He saw the results. And he knew, knew the results of sin. He would see eternal destruction. And he was stabbed in the heart. He was motivated to do something about it. Let me ask you another question. Paul, seeing a desperate situation that needed a radical solution, Christ. Friend, let me ask you this. What provokes you as a believer? What motivates you as a believer? Is it the seriousness or the, the grasp in our intellect that sin, if people die in their sin, there is but one destination for them? That's the reality of those who die in sin. Do we see all those souls that walk past our church? Do you see all those souls that walk past your front door? Friend, do we see them wholly given over to idolatry, wholly enslaved in sin? Sadly today, many believers, uh, the province over, the world over, they're provoked and stirred up about things that really do not matter in the grand scheme of eternity. They get provoked about so many different things. I'm going to give you some idea of these things. And these are a combination of different things uh, that pastors have told me. And some of them you'll find funny. Some believers get provoked about the length of the morning meeting. Uh, some believers, one pastor told me, he got an eight one day at the door for the color of his shirt. <coughs> pastors should only preach in white. guilty as charged. It wasn't here. I didn't get the it, and it was somebody else. should only preach in a white shirt. The pastor shouldn't preach without his jacket on. Guilty as charged. I didn't get that here. It was somebody else. The loudness of his tie. I'm not doing very well, am I? They get provoked if somebody's in their pew or their bench or their parking space. They get provoked if something's not done this way or it's done another way. They get all revved up about all manner and sorts of things, and yet We never hear that same energy, that same revving up when it comes to the prayer meeting, pleading for their lost souls, of their loved ones. Friend, we all want to see growth in the church, but friend, if we aren't properly provoked to see the true need, lost souls, wholly enslaved in idolatry and sin, we'll not see it. I mentioned this quote on Wednesday night by Leonard Ravenhill, and he said this, Hell is burning and the church is sleeping. Hell is burning and the church is sleeping. I'm going to amend it slightly. For many cases and many assemblies, hell is burning and the church is murmuring. That's the difference. Paul was properly provoked. Friend, are you properly provoked? Are you motivated? Do you really see what the work needs? Or has the enemy been able to use you to undermine the work? Folks, you know, we have so many misplaced priorities or trying to push what we think is important. And you know what? The devil loves it because the work is impeded. Paul had the vision of lost souls. He had the solution like you and I do. And you know what the solution is? Solution isn't in the pastor. The solution isn't even within yourselves, although we all bear responsibility. The solution is Christ. And the solution is preaching Christ. And getting people out under the sound of the gospel. Paul didn't come to Athens as a sightseer. Paul went to Athens as a soul winner. He went there to confront men with the claims of the eternal God. Who had revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul would begin to preach. And you know the idolatry. When Paul saw that need. He was stirred. He was properly provoked. And it brought out some of the best preaching that Paul has ever done. That we have on our pages. Folks, whenever we get it, sometimes we don't get it. I heard the story of uh, two owl dolls in the supermarket and uh, they hadn't seen each other in a while and they met each other in the frozen goods section. And one of them came up to the other one and says, well, how's things? said, no, not too bad, not too bad. She says, how's Bertie? Och, Bertie's dead. Och, is I. I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? Well, I went to make my dinner and Sent him out to pull a few carrots and he was out in the garden and sure he just keeled over and he died. Oh, what did you do? Oh sure, what could we do? Sure, we op- oh, had to open a tin of peas. She didn't really get it, did you? And friends, you know, until we get it, until we really get what matters, not all the petty rubbish the devil uses to distract us, we'll never get stirred, we'll never get motivated, we'll never be provoked to share Christ like you've never done before. Another brother prayed in the prayer meeting this morning. And I'm glad whenever these things happen because it confirms the message. But friends, this town has the capacity to be turned around for Christ. Did you know that? I know demographics are against us. I couldn't care less about who's who in the town. I know demographics are against us. But friend, it's not against Christ. The power of Christ is able to save anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And we'll see that. Paul began to boldly proclaim. Look what he does here. He not only was waiting, but he was watching, but then he was uh, working. Look at verses 17 through 18. What did he do? Paul didn't, uh, get on the phone back to Paul and, or to Silas and Timotheus and give off and say this is desperate here this whole place has gone to pot we've no hope here what did he do? You look at verse 17 therefore disputed or debated he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with them he continued to work he debated with the Jews he debated with the devout persons and notice uh, the frequency with which Paul did this in verse 17 he did it daily Willie Mullin said of this verse, Paul debated with the businessman as much as the busy man. He was there daily. Now I want you to see Paul in verse 18 met with two groups of people. Now, they might seem a little bit strange as we read of them in the pages of Scripture, but I want you to understand something about these two groups of people. Look at this in verse 18. There was the Epicureans and there was the Stoics. Who on earth or what on earth are Epicureans and Stoics? Well, I'm going to try to explain to you what they are, and you will be amazed at the threads from both sets of, of people and ideas and philosophies that are still around today, even in Northern Ireland. So the Epicureans, they were very philosophical, and they were great thinkers. And they had this belief that God, if God existed, he would no interest in humanity and had abandoned the world. And their number one thing as Epicureans was the pursuit of pleasure. Now, you fast forward to 2024, have things changed? That's what everybody's at. Everybody's searching for a pleasure, indulgence, and some sort of contentment. They, the Epicureans, they went for a very hedonistic lifestyle. They promoted indulgence and food, drink, and merriment, and all the rest of it. And they didn't have this idea that there was anything really after death. And once you died, you just returned to the ground as dust. And that was it. Friends, that is exactly the mindset of an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland today. What is that awful loud phrase you hear all the time? I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. Well that was the Epicureans, that was their mindset. There's no consequence to your actions, you've one trip round the sun, you're here and you'll be gone so enjoy yourself. And then there were the Stoics and they were a little bit opposite to the Epicureans and they had this very indifferent attitude towards life. They believed in what's known as emotional detachment. So they took away joy and they took away sorrow. They just had this sort of middle ground. And they just had a very cynical view of life. And they just didn't really want to have anything to do with life. They didn't see or take pleasure in things. They didn't take sorrow in things. They were very indifferent. And friends, incredibly, we still see that today. People in our society, you try to witness to them, you tell them about uh, heaven, you tell them about hell, you tell them about their need to be saved, and an awful lot of the time they'll just go, yeah, so what? You know, they're completely indifferent, it doesn't seem to register, it doesn't seem to come home, and they're very, very detached. And then in verse 18, there's something else that I want you to see. Paul not only dealt with the philosophers of the day, and notice what they said to him. Here in verse eighteen, and maybe this is what some of you say as you come into church on a Sunday morning. And some said, "What will this babbler say? What's the babbler going to say this morning?" Well, that word "babbler" in the original it refers to a seed picker, or someone like a wee bird picking up the seeds. And it was a term that was used all those years ago to belittle Paul, trying to say, look, he's insignificant, he's very foolish, he's very small. We're intellectual, we've got our philosophy, we've got our ideas about life, and we've it all sorted out. And who's this boy coming along now to tell us about the cross, about Christ? And friend, surely we see both sets of ideas in our society today. And what is the solution? Well, we're about to see it. The solution is the preaching of the cross. Never worry about snobbery, intellectually or otherwise, but we preach the cross. Then there was wonder. Look at verses 19 through 21. You see, Paul would have had and did have an exceptionally brilliant mind. There is no doubt about it. Maybe the best mind of his generation and maybe outside of Christ, maybe of all time. And of course, look at verse 19. They took him and brought him Onto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Look at verse 20. You're bringing strange things to our ears. We would like to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then in verse 21, it tells us that the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were always completely uh, looking at and trying to consider this new idea that would come around. But not Paul, he had a wonderful pushing towards Christ. Yes, Paul had an intellect, he had a great mind, but he submitted his intellect, his personality, everything to God. He just gave that all over to God. Wonders there's somebody here with a great mind. Wonders there's somebody here with great intellect. Wonders there's somebody here with, with great resource in terms of mental thinking and all the rest of it. Have you given it over to the Lord? you given everything in your life over to the Lord. Say everything that I have, materially, intellectually, emotionally, physically. Lord, it's yours. Use me, whatever way I can. That's the way Paul was. Now, here's the second point I want you to bring to bring to you this morning. Paul's sermon. Look at verse 22 through 34. Now, what Paul does here in these verses is actually a wonderful way to deal uh, with witnessing. Now, one thing I want you to remember. Paul gets on the offensive. He doesn't stay defensive. See, the problem in a lot of churches today is this. We're all in survival mode. We're all in survival mode. We're worried about all sorts of things and not being able to survive one way or another. And the church is in survival mode. And whenever you're on the defense, you're actually more vulnerable. The church needs to go on the attack. You need to go on the attack. So what? If your family think you're mad in the head. So what if people ridicule you and mock you in the workplace for your stand for Christ? So what? Is it not better to be with Christ? Friends, I don't know about you. And I know things like this is easy to say from a platform. And you might, "Mm, that's good, that's good. But friend, I'll tell you this. I'd I'd rather be in the valley with Christ than be on a mountaintop alone. I don't know about you. But Paul's sermon he takes the offensive, he doesn't get defensive, he gets out of survival mode and he goes on the attack. Don't ever be intimidated by the crowd or who makes up the crowd, never you worry about it, you speak out to Christ. Now look at this, there's declaration in verse 22 through 23, we're going to move quickly so put on your seatbelts here. Look at verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now in the way the King James translates that word superstitious, you might think he's He's taken a swipe at these individuals. But that word, it can mean religious. It can be translated, probably better translated, too religious or deeply religious. In other words, Paul was saying to them, this is a good way to witness to somebody. He's saying, look, I see that you are sincere, you're devoted, and you are religious. But it's not going to get you anywhere. But he's starting them right where they are. Here's the other thing that I want you to know. Is Paul witnessing now to people that knew scriptures? No. He's talking and he's speaking now to people who have no previous knowledge of the word of God. He's not speaking to the Jews here. He's not in the synagogue at this point. He's now on Mars Hill and he's speaking to the men of Athens. He's speaking to these philosophers. He's speaking to people that have no idea about scriptures. They don't know any scriptures. Remember in Acts 23, Paul uh, or Acts 17 verse 23 look at what he says here he says there's a description or inscription rather to the unknown god and i mentioned earlier they were so worried about missing out in one particular god that they put this altar up of the unknown god to cover the basis and paul uses this as his illustration he uses this as his launch pad to proclaim the gospel he can't go into the old testament he can't maybe quote from the Psalms like he's done before in previous parts of the missionary journey, but he knows how to go for it. He knows where to start at their bases. What does God's word tell us? He that winneth souls is wise. And it's not just that it's a wise thing to win souls, but you also have to be wise whenever you're looking to win souls. If you're looking to witness to somebody uh, that you know and that you love, uh, look at them. Think about what they know about the scriptures. And as we mentioned last week, uh, Bible literacy and knowledge of the Bible in Northern Ireland, sadly, amongst unbelievers, is probably at a very, very low ebb. People don't know an awful lot about the scriptures anymore. And we just have to accept that reality. And that's why we sometimes have to change, not the message, but maybe the method of our delivery and the delivery itself. We have to simplify things right down. No point in bombing into the gospel message and starting off and coming off with big terms and putting myself under pressure for tonight, but no point in jumping into the gospel and coming off with big terms about redemption and all these big, big words. What does that mean to anybody that's not looked at a Bible before or no knowledge in Sunday school or anything like that? You have to be wise. You have to think about the people that you're trying to witness to. Then look at something else. There was a description here, verses 24 through 31. Paul says, as I passed by, I beheld your devotion, devotions rather, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all the things therein, seeing he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Paul sets out a wonderful thing. Paul says, I want you to, I want to teach you, I want to tell you about this God that you don't know. And you might be here this morning, you might be listening online and you don't know God. Well, I've got wonderful news for you because you can know God. You can know God. The Bible clearly teaches us it's possible to know God and to know him in a personal way. Now, look at this with me. I want you to see there's a few things here that Paul lays out. I want you to see, first of all, he lays out creator God. Look at verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. 25, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Paul saying, look, God is the God of creation. God is the God who has made all things. He's brought all things into existence. He uh, sustains all things. And when Paul said that statement, by the way, he didn't have the understanding or the appreciation of creation like you and I have. Now, don't do it right now, please. Hope you're not on your phones. But go home this afternoon to your phone or your computer, and you can have all the information about our universe that you can imagine. Just a few searches on the computer. You can look at the world all the way around the world. There's not one part of the world, hardly, that hasn't been photographed in some way. You can go on Google Earth, and you can see all around the world. And Paul didn't have that. Yet we have that, we have that knowledge. You know, the people of Athens, they had some weird and wonderful ideas about where men came from. The people of Athens, they believed that humans emerged or came from the soil. In Egypt at that time, they thought that people, humans originated from a white worm that crawled out of the Nile River. Now you might be sitting there thinking, that's crazy, but friends, we have people today believe we came from the monkeys. Now, bear in mind, some of the antics of some of us, maybe they're not too far off. We people believe we came from the monkeys. They thought they came from the dirt. Other people thought they came from a white worm in the Nile. And friend, I don't need to remind you, and those of you who have children in education, you be very careful what they're being taught in biology, because that idea of evolution, that theory, that theory from the pit of hell, is being promoted in the classrooms with absolute Vengeance and no room for anything else. But friend, let me tell you this. You might uh, be in a position, you might be in a place where you're being ridiculed, you're being mocked for your faith, for your stand. God Almighty has gone to the trouble of putting it down on the pages of Scripture. Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, he wasn't just creator. Paul just didn't lay out that God was the creator. But then look at 26. He is the appointer. Look at verse 26. And hath made... Uh, of one blood uh, all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation see in verse 26 paul just didn't say god has created the world and then abandoned it that was what the epicureans thought he's saying look god is involved in the affairs of man and every individual Paul is suggesting that God's care extended to the point of knowing each and every individual's location and their circumstances. God has a care for humanity. Of course, we know that because he sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. Do you know there's not a nation today that rises or falls that God doesn't know about it? You know, I had a wonderful thought. Well, I think it's wonderful. Maybe you do too. You know, the Roman Empire rose and fell, didn't catch God out. The Third Reich came along and fell, ultimately, didn't catch God out. All these different things happen and they never catch God out. And I want to bring it a little bit closer to home. And I'm not being political. Politics and the pulpit should never mix. But we all know what's happened in the last two weeks or so. and uh, Government has been restored and we're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya. And I've had, uh, not from here, but one or two other people have messaged me and they have said, you know, I'm worried that we're going to end up in a united Ireland. (laughs) Do you know what? What does verse 26 say? He has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. If it happens, it's not going to catch God out. And do you know what? Is God going to abandon us if that ever happened? Of course he's not. God is with us. God knows nothing catches God by surprise. So we don't need to fear or worry about it. God's not only the creator of God. Paul didn't lay out that he was creator. Paul also pointed, uh, showed them that he was an appointer. But then look at verse 27 through 28. God is a sustainer. And boy, how we know this as those who are believed. Look at what he says in verse 27. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us. Let's just pause there at verse 27, because there's something here. You see that little phrase, they might feel after him. If I'm right in remembering in my study, that's the only time that little phrase or that word is used in the New Testament. And it's very significant because, well, what happens if uh, you get up in the middle of the night and um, you have to go get a drink or do something else in the middle of the night and you're going up the hallway and no lights on. What happened? What are you doing? You're trying to feel for the light switch, aren't you? And trying to find it. That's the idea here. It's trying to say that there's people and there was those who were in darkness and because they didn't have light or they didn't have sight, they were trying to feel after God in the darkness and they couldn't find him. That's the idea behind that, that little phrase there in verse 27. Even though... He be not far from every one of us. Isn't it lovely to know that this morning that God is not far from any one of us? No matter what we go through, good and bad, the ugly, the beautiful in life, God is not far from us. Now there's another little expression here in verse uh, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring now that little expression, uh, we are made, we are God's creation, we are made in the image of God. Nobody is, is God's child by birth, a physical birth. You see, there is the human family and there is the divine family. We are born physically, we're born into a physical family, but as you well know, the only way that we can get into God's family is by being born again. That's why uh, the Lord Jesus, of course, laid it out to Nicodemus plain and simply, you must be born again. You see, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll only die once. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Wonderful thought. Friend, I trust that you know that you've been born again. But then there wasn't just the creator God. There wasn't just a God who appoints the times. There wasn't just a God that sustains. But then I want you to see a character of God beginning to be revealed. Look at verse 29 through 30 as we pull this together. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That little phrase, God winked at, you could write in your margin, uh, overlooked. God overlooked. Because these things were done in ignorance. But then in verse 30, I want you to really see, Paul's bringing out and showing these, these Greeks and these very intellectual, brainy people, he's trying to show them God's character. What does it say at the end of verse 30? Beautiful phrase. But God, at the times of this ignorance, God overlooked. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Isn't that a very interesting little phrase? And why would Paul say that? Well, I'm going to tell you something. There, there is an element of theology, man's theology, I must add, not the theology of Scripture. But they will tell us that uh, not all men can be seen. And Scripture, when married up with Scripture, does not contradict itself. So when Paul comes off with of this statement here saying, but God uh, commandeth all men everywhere to repent, that matches perfectly with Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, is long-suffering, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, man's theology often will contradict itself and contradict Scripture, but the theology of Scripture does not contradict itself. God commands all men and women and young people everywhere to repent. And why would he say that? Because in Second Peter 3 verse 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't it wonderful how Scripture does not contradict Scripture? There's the character of God. And then very quickly, look at verse 31. There is the assessor. He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Who is that man? Well, he's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That man, Jesus. You see, whenever man came into the world and fell because of sin, God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're singing it in our opening hymn this morning. God sent his son, they called him Jesus and Jesus, whenever he came into the world, it was, if you like, God wrapping himself in human flesh. That's what we would call incarnation. God did not come down in an image like the Greeks worship. He didn't come down in an idol that they also worship, but he came down in flesh. The word uh, dwelt among us, put on flesh, and dwelt among us. And we're going to sing it at the table later on, but the, that wonderful old hymn puts, puts it this way. Without reluctance, flesh and blood, his substance, the great creator came, and Jesus was his name. But he's coming as a judge. Now, there's a number of judgments in Scripture. We don't have time to unwrap them all, but really uh, two of possibly the most important uh, refer to Uh, to us in that there's the judgment seat of christ and we've dealt with that many times that's for uh, the believer where we'll give an account of service and our motivation from it and let's make sure we're properly provoked for that but then there is that other judgment that uh, we as believers we will never face but it still sends a little bit of a shiver up our spine there is that great white throne judgment there's that judgment where uh, those who are not saved they will be judged according to their works and sentenced to punishment eternal punishment in the lake of fire Revelation 20 verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Friend, how, if you're able, how can we neglect to pray and to plead for our loved ones before the throne of grace? Someday, somewhere, sometime, there's going to be a judgment. That last song will have been sung, the last word will have been spoken, the last game will be played, the last seal will have been made, the last battle will have been fought, and men will stand before God in judgment. It's a frightening prospect, isn't it? That great white throne judgment. But then lastly, there is decision. Look what happens in verse thirty two through thirty-four. I'm pretty sure I've preached this in the gospel before, this little passage. And uh, I couldn't improve on the outline that I got before, so I'm just going to lay it out for you tonight or this morning. Look at verse 32. We have the mockers, there's the waiters, and the takers. Look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, some waited. We'll hear thee again of this matter. And then verse 34. Certain men clave unto him and believe. You go to preach the gospel, you go to witness to your friend, your family member, that person that you work with. These are the three decisions that you will get, or the three reactions rather that you will get. You will get those that will mock you. You will get those who will deride you. They'll knock it off. Don't be so silly. I don't need religion. I don't need this. You will get those who will mock. You will get those who will say, well, you know what? You have to say, that's very interesting. Sure, we'll chat about it again sometime. And then you get those who, verse 34, there's wonderful words, certain men clave unto him and believed. Friend, I know most of us here are takers. If not all of us, we are takers of the wonderful word of God. How we need to pray and not be discouraged when we face the mockers. How we need not to be disillusioned and discouraged when people want to wait or hear it again. My friend, we need to pray that they would be believers. Remember, in the light of Paul's sermon, what led to that wonderful preaching of Paul? We haven't been able to do it justice this morning. Do you know what? Paul was properly provoked? Verse 16. If you look at verse 16 again, his spirit was stirred within him. Do you know Paul had exactly the same heart as his master? You know in Matthew 9, verse 36, he's talking of Christ, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Paul had the mind. He had the motivation of his master. He was moved with compassion. He was provoked to do something about it. Do you know there's people not even a hundred feet from where I stand and where you sit? And if I could put it as bluntly as I can, they're walking past this church this morning and this evening. They're trundling past in their cars and they're trundling to hell. They're just trundling along and they're wholly given over to idolatry. They're wholly given over to sin. Who's going to tell them? Friend, may we endeavor to be properly motivated to preach Christ this week, to share Christ this week, to present Christ this week, to live Christ this week. I was sent this yesterday. It said, you have one life Don't spend it scrolling through everyone else's life. Don't spend it wishing you had someone else's life. Don't spend it comparing it to everyone else's life. Don't spend it competing with everyone else. Don't spend it talking about everyone else. Don't spend it recounting your mistakes. Don't spend it rehearsing your failures. Don't spend it focusing on your limitations. Don't spend it living in regret. Don't spend it paralyzed by fear. Don't spend it listening to the naysayers. Don't spend it living purposelessly. Live it for. Christ, only one life, it will soon be passed, it's only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray before we sing our closing hymn.